Welcome to Never Again Is Now, a podcast about anti-Semitism. I'm Evelyn Marcus. And I am Phyllis Simbler-Miller. We are now 10 weeks after the horrendous attack by Hamas on Israel. Our returning guest, Michael Berenbaum, will give us an update, update of the war between Israel and Hamas and, and the violence and aggression on Um, towards Jews everywhere in the world, also in the United States. Michael Berenbaum, PhD and rabbi, is the director of the Ziggy Ziering Institute for Exploring the Ethical and Religious Implications of the Holocaust and a professor of Jewish studies at the American Jewish University in Los Angeles. He's the author and editor of 18 books, and he, he was the executive editor of the new Encyclopedia Judaica, Michael, thank you so much for coming back on our show. Pleasure to be here. Great. Um, great to hear. Um, we would like an update from you since you have so much, um, uh, you know, special information about what's going on in Israel, what's going on in America, what's going on elsewhere in the world with the Jewish people. Um, uh, We would like a general update from you. Where, where would you like to start in, in, in the situation in Israel and Gaza or the situation outside of Israel and Gaza? Well, let's first start with the situation in Israel and Gaza, because I think that, that um, uh, everything flows from that. Um, so let's begin there. We're now uh, 67 days or 68 days into the war, depending on which time framework it's now um uh um eight o'clock in the in the uh evening in israel so we understand we're uh on the way on the way to the 68th day first thing to say is the war is going to be long and when the war is long that has implications for everybody it means that um israel itself had made a series of political promises at the very beginning that it cannot keep Uh, including that it would destroy Hamas and get rid of every last Hamas fighter that was made in the heat of anger. It's not a realistic um, um, uh, uh, war goal. The war goal at this point is to dismantle Hamas as a military force, to therefore cripple it as a political force, and um, uh, to make a distinction which we have to understand is a little bit of an aspirational distinction rather than a realistic distinction. That is the distinction between the Palestinians and Hamas. So it's a war against Hamas in the hopes that eventually there will be a um, way to establish a different type of rule over Gaza. Uh, it's clear that uh, the war is going to be long, and because the war is going to be long, that's going to demand tremendous political and military support from the United States because the amount of ammunition being consumed is not an amount of ammunition that Israel can replenish immediately. It also means that Israel must be prepared for three other fronts to the war. The first front to the war, additional front to the war, is the battle against uh, Hezbollah in the north. The second front is the um, uh, battle against Syria, and the forces in Syria that would like to heat up that situation. And finally, this is the first of Israel's war against uh, Iran, uh, 
and its surrogates. And that's a war that, for example, is heating up in the um, uh, in the um, Red Sea and in Israel's sh uh, shipping lanes. There is the possibility, and this gets into Israeli domestic forces, there's the possibility of yet another front, which is that there are forces within Israel and within the government that would like to heat up the West Bank. And Israel is going after Hamas leadership in the West Bank. But if the West Bank does heat up and it heats up, not so much because Israel is attacked from the Palestinians in the West Bank, but Israeli settlers attack the Palestinians, Israel will have another front and therefore be even more dependent on military supply from the United States. The war is going slowly. The war is going effectively. Uh, and the war is, um, Israel is trying to minimize its own casualties. And what we've discovered, uh, which is clear now, is that uh, the Israeli complaints that the infrastructure has been, that the schools, hospitals, mosques, and the like have used has been used as an infrastructure for um, Hamas are credible, and they're demonstrable, and they're uh, they're truthful. Um, but that also means that the amount of civilian casualties is significant, though the um, statistics that we have from Hamas's um, Hamas uh, um, health services uh, are not accurate, but they are. Uh, as it were, uh, visually compelling. And Hamas began this with the idea that um, it could disrupt the political process of the peace process with the normalization process with Saudi Arabia. And Israel uh, would either not respond or would respond only with a token response, but it understood that the Palestinians would be bear the brunt of it, whether that will create an anger at the Palestinian, uh, at Hamas itself, or merely an anger at um, at uh, Israel for causing civilian casualties, uh, is still unclear. What is clear is that the world now sees the casualties and forgets about October seventh, and forgets also about Israel having to reestablish its own deterrent. Now, the Israeli government um, has also faced some problems because the question becomes, what happens afterwards? And what happens afterwards and what happens in between is dividing. There are those within the Israeli government who don't want to provide anything for Gaza in terms of both humanitarian aid and most especially something else, um, which is the the um, a fuel because fuel is siphoned off and used and used to um, support the infrastructure in the tunnels. There are those who don't want to provide anything. There are those who understand that they have to fight not only a military battle, but a battle of public relations. And that cannot lead to a humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza of starvation, of lack of fuel, of lack of food, of lack of water and all of that. So the Israeli government is wrestling with that. What's gonna happen afterwards? At this point, it's clear that um, there will be literally no support for Israel to return as an occupying power. And Israel was not occupying Gaza. It had withdrawn from Gaza well back in 2006. 
There is the American idea that a revamped Palestinian authority can come in and rule. That does not seem to be realistic because the Palestinian authority itself is terribly weak and is also, um, uh, um, uh, I would say, only an anti-Semite and a hater of the Palestinians could believe that the Palestinian people have the leadership they deserve. And uh, consequently, that's not there. Question is whether the Arab governments will step in uh, and be able to assume role in governments, in governance. And however much the uh, administration is asking Israel to focus on what happens the day after the war, um, the Israeli government is probably incapable of doing that. And furthermore, Benjamin Netanyahu is imagining it understands that the day after the war is the accounting for the war and that uh, both shatters him politically uh, and the like he is not going to achieve in all likelihood the type of great military victory that is going to erase the uh, problems uh, that were found in the vulnerability of israel on october 7th so that's the Israeli front. And uh, let's talk for a moment. Wait, wait. Also- Before we leave the Israeli front, I want to talk for one minute about public relations. I just saw a headline that I actually agree with. It basically, Israel's losing the public relations war. And do you have any thoughts about it? I don't understand why every single day the news doesn't say, demand the International Red Cross visit the hostages. This is just beyond anything let's the red cross is saying we can't in we can't invade and see the hostages uh hamas does not abide by any rules of by any of the international covenants and we've seen uh consequently the red cross itself and i certainly don't want to be an apologist for the red cross i'm still angry at the red cross from world war ii and their ineffectiveness of visiting either death camps and the way in which they were deceived when they received, when they visited Trezenstadt. Yes, the Red Cross has a problem. It can it cannot credibility credibly see the hostages, even if the demand is made. And um, Israel has to conduct itself as if it has two wars to fight. One is a military battle, and the other is a public relations battle. And Israel's government has not helped itself in the public relations battle. Uh, It hasn't helped itself when somebody speaks about this as being a second Nakba, uh, when somebody speaks about a return to settlements in Gaza, when somebody speaks about permanent rule over Gaza, when elements in the government wants to let Gaza deteriorate to starvation and all of all of that. So it. In a realistic world, the government, in a world in which they took both battles seriously, then you would not only have a war cabinet, but you would have what they uh, call in politics a war room to hit out the political message in the public relations battle every day. And that would demand that some people uh, guard their tongues and... um, uh, there's a statement in Hebrew, Shtika Hichachma, 
that sometimes silence is the greatest form of wisdom. Uh, and wow. that, that, that is that they guard their tongues and uh, uh, don't, don't speak forth. One of the problems in our um, world today, uh, and we see this in the social media, is, ver is some people don't have an unpublished thought. <laughs> and uh, for most of us, um, a, a, a moment of self-censorship between what we think and what we actually say is not, an, I, I don't know about you, but I would say it's never unwise for me to think before I speak. And I, 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 I would like to react to that briefly. Uh, coming from Europe, I'm very much used to a negative, very negative press about Israel in any conflict already for 30 years that's going on. Um, uh, no matter who is in the government, no matter what people in the government say or not, there is always in the European press, the, the let's say 98% of the news time spent on uh, the conflict there, a conflict there, is with the camera zoomed in on the suffering children of the Palestinians. That again, somehow, that's always the case. Now we see it also more in America. Although when I speak to my and all, uh, to my friends in Europe and also follow the Dutch news and the other European news, you still see more two-sidedness in the American, much more two-sidedness in the American media than in Europe. Um, and so the, the, somehow, for some reason, the Palestinian side has been uh, much better at um, their public relations than the Israelis not, have been. Not only public relations, the, 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 there are two mythoses that take place. Number one, in the war between Goliath and David, you don't root for Goliath. Right. And Israel is perceived as Goliath and right. uh, the Palestinian as oppressed. But one of the things we have to look at in the Palestinian perception of oppression is even oppressed people is not without agency. And consequently, they've made a series of choices that have been catastrophic. Basic element is that from 1947 onward, had they accepted the notion of partition, there could have been an Arab state and a Jewish state in the resolution of November 29th, 1947, by the United Nations. Number two, Jordan could have resisted the um, invasion, the attack on Israel in 1967. It was asked not to attack Israel by Israel, and Israel said it would not invade uh, on, on the West Bank if Jordan did not attack. Number three, we could now be in the 23rd year of the Palestinian state uh, if they had agreed to uh, to the parameters of the Clinton proposal in 2000. We had another opportunity about six or seven uh, years later uh, with the uh, uh, agreement of uh, of uh, Omer and the reaching out. And each time they have done it, Abiban once said the Palestinians have never lost an opportunity to lose an opportunity. And uh, as one who's committed to um, Israel, the Jewish people, and also to uh, a certain sense of 
equity for the Palestinians. When I say that, I don't say that with humor. I say that with deep and profound sadness, because the only way to get out of this situation is to have serious leadership on both parts. You have in, in the Palestinian Authority, you have a president who hasn't stood for election in more than uh, 15 years, who's 87 years old, and who even engaged in a period of time in denial of the uh, October 7th attacks, even though Hamas bragged about the attack, uh, uh, Abbas even tried to deny that the attack was the attack. So we have uh, a terrible situation in in that respect. Let's switch, um, Phyllis and Evelyn, let's switch to the American scene for a moment because, because we have to see that. Number one, we have to say that there's been tremendous support for Israel from the Biden administration. And the only question becomes how long will they continue to support Israel? And also, um, how much of a political price will they pay for that support? And if you look at this point, it could cost them, for example, the state of Michigan uh, in the 2024 election, which would um, narrow the range of possibilities um, for Joe Biden uh, being reelected. And the other is they are under significant pressure from parts of Democratic uh, um, constituency to come to some sort of ceasefire. They've given Israel a window and how large a window, how open a window, how long Israel can endure um, uh, the war effort with the political support of the American people and of the American government. We also have a problem, which is that um, the proposal to give Israel aid, and let me make something clear because we have a very stupid um, perception of what this aid is. Um, the aid at this point is linked in the Biden proposal it's linked to aid for um, Ukraine. The Republicans have asked for accountability for the aid for the Ukraine without the understanding that 95% of the aid is spent in the United States and does not go abroad. It is not literally foreign aid. It is aid to provide material uh, armaments, missiles, bullets, um, you know, um, uh, and the like for Israel and for the Ukraine in their battles. So when you ask for accountability, you have to look at where the money is being spent. The money is being spent in the United States for American arms, which seek replenishment. Israel will need that. It needs that both at the quantity of arms it is spent, it is now expending and also to protect itself in the foreseeable future were the other areas to get hotter and to get more to get more um, uh, uh, dense. The linking of the Israeli aid with the, Ukra with the Ukrainian aid presents a problem for the Republicans in Congress. The linking, as my, uh, Speaker uh, Mike Johnson did, of, for example, uh, Israeli uh, aid with a cut in, in the IR in uh, funding for the IRS uh, was a problem for Democrats, and both of them are playing politics 
with an urgent with an urgent international uh, need. We also saw something um, literally incredible. Incredible means something that doesn't have credibility mm-hmm. and something that is almost unbelievable with the um, testimony of the um, three presidents of MIT, uh, Harvard, and um, and the University of Pennsylvania before Congress and the inability, the they... These presidents uh, had to walk a complex line, and they failed at it. And they failed at it. They failed at it at a political test. If you read the transcript, it sounds a lot better than if you saw what we saw. But their problem is that they wanted to defend free speech, and uh, yet they couldn't bring themselves to a wholehearted condemnation of calls for genocide against the Jewish people. And as Josh Shapiro, the governor of Pennsylvania said, that shouldn't be terribly hard. Um, The best analogy of this is is ironically, when Michael Dukakis was asked about uh, his opposition to the death penalty, what would you do if if, uh, your wife, Kitty Dukakis, uh, was raped? And he gave an intellectual highbrow answer without saying one god forbid number two how the hell are you why the hell are you thinking of it and number three my instinct would be to rip the rape rapist from limb to limb and kill him but that's the reason that i shouldn't be the judge and somebody else should be the judge the reality is it shouldn't be hard to say a call for the genocide of the jewish people is unacceptable, is outrageous, is expe- expellable as a call, by the way, for the genocide of any people. Exactly. Uh, is is that. And the hidden motif behind that uh, is the culture wars in which um, uh, on the conservative side, the sense is that if you had said a call for, is the call for genocide of black people, in the United States, unacceptable, they would have come down in a million in a minute and saying absolutely yes. Why is it acceptable to express such animus toward uh, the Jews and, and the like? And uh, uh, it was a, a, a pathetic display. Could uh, you could it, you briefly explain what the call to genocide was? Well, on American campuses, let's, uh, let's differentiate it because um, uh, uh, Congressman Stefanik was not accurate. Um, The word intifada means uprising, and a call for intifada is not a call for genocide. Call for the elimination of the Jewish people is a call for genocide. Uh, Even the call from, uh, 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 you know, uh, from from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, is a call for the eradication of the state of Israel. As it is implemented in policy, that means the elimination and ultimately probably the annihilation of the Jewish people living in the land. The Palestinians said that, uh, actually it was said in 1967, we're going to drive the Jews into the sea. So the Jews have heard that as a call for genocide. 
Uh, I'm not sure everybody who says that uh, calls it as call for genocide. But let me say something else, which is we're having a, a great deal of difficulty distinguishing between um, anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, or at least the uh, there is a discussion about that. One of the things that anti-Semites and anti-Zionists share in common is an opposition to the Jewish future. The Jewish people have decided essentially that the Jewish future involves the Jewish people living in the land of Israel with a Jewish state. How that state is going to be constituted has been subject for a tremendous amount of debate. How it remains Jewish and democratic is something that was dividing Israel enormously, but a majority of the Jewish people will shortly live in the state of Israel. And consequently, saying you oppose Zionism, meaning you oppose a state of Israel, uh, as currently constituted, is to say, essentially, you oppose the decision the Jews have made with regard to their own future. The second decision we've made with regard to our own future is the decision that we would, uh, those of us who live in the diaspora, would trust our, our future to a liberal democracy where human rights and human dignity and uh, the Jewish people are respected and protected. You and mean we, outside Israel, right? Just to uh, clarify. Those of us living in, living in the diaspora. And we have two problems at this moment, which is it's unclear to us that liberal democracy with the protection of human rights is going to endure. And number two, it's unclear to us. And here we have to look at, at something profoundly disturbing, which is that the most virulent protests against Israel have occurred in the most elite universities in the United States. They haven't occurred at state universities. They haven't occurred at community colleges. They haven't occurred in in um, uh, certain areas of the country, but the elite have sort of protested uh, Israel and they've made their Jewish students feel uncomfortable. And that means in essence that some Jews now say, maybe our gamble on a liberal democracy that's going to protect us and keep us safe is not a gamble that paid off. American uh, parents used to say, I would love for my child to get into Harvard or Penn or MIT or, or whatever have you. And um, they're not so sure at this moment that that's where they want to send the their students. And that's when they want to send their kids. Uh, and some presidents have done a very good job of making sure that that um, some presidents have done a very good job of making sure that their students feel comfortable. Now, uh, I have to say as a university professor that I don't mind if students confront uncomfortable ideas in a university. Intellectual ideas should shake us up dramatically and refashion our thinking, should challenge who we are and what we think. And we don't have to feel comfortable with ideas, but we do have to feel that we can raise these ideas 
without facing physical violence, scorn, and abs- and danger. Uh, and a classroom should be safe, not from attacking individ- not from attacking the ideas of people, but attacking the individual uh, and the like. So I have a, 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 a discomfort with those who want everything to be safe. I want the classroom to be safe, but the ideas raised in the classroom not to necessarily be safe, but to be challenging and to be and to be shattering. Uh, so this is where we stand at this moment politically uh, in the United States. And the United States, I would say, is better than uh, most of the countries um, uh, in the world with regard to the condition of the Jews, though there are some exceptions. Uh, Ironically, um, um, Germany, Germany, Germany. and ironically, in certain respects, even Poland, in which, um, you know, there is not the need for the type of security for Jewish institutions in Poland that we have in the United States. Uh, but that has that, and Poland now has gotten back to a liberal government that just took office this week, a liberal democratic government against the government that it formerly had. But you know that that uh, you've gotten in certain countries, you've gotten a right wing nationalist government including in the Netherlands at this point, and including in in Slovakia. And that's been problematic. So Jews are facing um, uh, uh, a difficult moment that calls into question the essential decisions that we've made with regard to our future. Well, ironically, um, the, the, the attitude towards Israel and Jewish people is better at the right-wing parties in Europe than at the left-wing parties. Depends how far right you're going. Well, the ones that are big. It it depends. If you're talking right-center, you're correct. If you're talking extreme right, you're not correct. Uh, Uh, I I think I am. I think... Wait, wait, Evelyn, you're... Let's... You know, we have to separate the Netherlands from other countries, but let's get back. Wait, I, I want to make sure because of time limits, I want to make sure we say something about the hostages because it's just really important. To well, let's talk- let's talk, let's let's talk about one other thing which we didn't touch on, which is um certain um women leaders uh and uh you know given a great voice in the United States by Sheryl Sandberg. Uh, have said that one of the things that the women's groups have uh, done is to neglect the uh, sexual violation that and sexual mutilation that was part of the attack of October 7th. And somehow we are to believe women, except if they're Jewish women, who are complaining yes. about being raped in the process. And that's bringing up uh, a lot of the hypocrisy and the notion that we're getting with a whole range of inter, uh, of intersectionality. So I think we have to focus on that. The hostages are number one, the low the the low hanging uh, fruit uh, of the hostages, uh, meaning the foreign hostages, the elderly, and the children, 
and uh, mothers and their children have essentially been um, in return for ceasefire. They have been returned. There is some talk about um, uh, a pause again in the in the attacks uh, at this point for the return of more hostages. What's disturbing um, to me from military perspective is that Israel has not been able to find the hiding places of the hostages. And furthermore, um, one of the strategies that it had thought it could pursue with regard to the tunnels, which is the flooding of the tunnels with seawater, which would have been a combination of uh, two issues. Number one, does it create enormous um, and permanent ecological damage? Or the second issue is, will they then be involved in murdering these hostages, in in taking the lives of these hostages by drowning? Uh, This has hesitated for the use of that tactic, and that tactic could have potentially saved Israeli lives and also brought... um, the um, Hamas fighters who are hiding in the tunnels out of the tunnels and thus created an opportunity. The hostages are in a very difficult situation. It's now 67 days in which they've been in captivity. Listening to the people who have previously been hostages, one um, would say they're in very difficult straits in terms of um combination of medical um, conditions of basic food, of basic shelter, of living in uh, in the underground without knowing day and night. So the hostage situation is horrific. The Israelis also face uh, a difficult situation, which is that the hostages create a restraint on the war effort. And Israel has to do two things at the same time which is it has to fight for the hostages as if there is no war and has to fight the war as if there are no hostages. And that's an impossibility to walk that delicate line. One has to keep in mind the human situation of the hostages. And when you look at that, you look at a horrendous, difficult, problematic, and... uh, frightening situation uh, yeah. for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Michael, do you, do you have any information about the Gazan population, uh, their, how they view Hamas these days? Are they... We are hearing, we are hearing uh, a couple of things that some Gazans are angry at Hamas for bringing on this destruction. We are also hearing that Hamas's situation, for example, in the West Bank has improved because they are the heroes. Mm. They have returned the prisoners in a way that nonviolence has not returned the prisoners. And one of the issues, uh, uh, and we've also understood that the Israeli policy uh, up till now has been proven to be a dramatic failure, which is... Israel Israel thought, uh, the Israeli government thought that the problem is the Palestinian Authority 
had a political demand that it was unwilling to meet, which is the demand for a two-state solution. Therefore, they um, decided that they would uh, allow Hamas to get money and Hamas to have workers in Israel because Hamas, since Hamas wanted the destruction of Israel, they posed no political challenge to the um, views of, of the Israeli government. And consequently, they could be, as it were, bribed and appeased for a while and therefore contained. And every once in a while, Israel would have to, quotation marks, mow the lawn to keep Hamas under control. That strategy has proven to be a total and complete failure. And um, uh, because Hamas has proved um, a fighting capacity that made it effective, and consequently, um, whatever government comes in in the aftermath of this situation is going to have to think of what the political horizon has been. The irony is that though this is a war, um, it has renewed discussions for a Palestinian state in a way that uh, had not been spoken of before October 7th. And the other thing that that um, um, the question becomes, there has to be at some level a political horizon for this, uh, and one does not know what that looks like. But there's a challenge to the left and a challenge to the right within Israel from all of this, and um, that will have to be sorted out once the immediate battle uh, is is done. But even the immediate battle is going to take some time. Israel's looking at about a two-month horizon. I think um, one's looking, the, the um, Biden administration would like a much shorter horizon. If I want to just say one thing. I just don't know how Israel can ever win when constantly Palestinians are being taught daily in their schools funded by the UN to hate Jews and kill Jews. How do you how do you overcome that? Well, the the answer to that is they have to be taught differently and there has to be a dramatic change of attitude. Let's also point out one more thing that's um terribly important to understand about the situation. Different than 73, different than 79. The Arabs have not employed the oil weapon. You mean the Arab countries? The Arab countries have not employed the oil weapon. In mm-hmm. fact, in California, which has enormously high gasoline prices, gasoline prices are falling. They're falling dramatically. They're down about a dollar sixty, a dollar seventy a gallon since uh, four or five months ago. There are two reasons for that. There are three reasons for that. Number one, contrary to um, what the people are saying, drill, 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 the United States is now the largest oil producer in the world, and we are, in terms of natural gas, we are uh, so large that we are producing three times the natural gas of um, the next, uh, we are producing more natural gas than the next three countries uh, who are producers of natural gas. 
The Biden administration doesn't want to say that out loud because they don't want the notion of fossil fuels and their problem to the environment. And the Republicans uh, don't want to say that out loud because they want to say drill, drill, drill. There's been restraint on the amount of drilling, etc. The other way to look at the uh, uh, the other uh, and uh, there there are two other factors involved. If you raise the price of oil significantly, that makes all the alternative energies much more viable, and consequently. Um, uh, it will lessen the value of oil over the short term and over the long term. More people will go into electric cars, more effort will be made to develop an infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. More um, solar panels, more wind uh, wind uh, uh, things and like. The, the last and most important is that if we tell the truth, the Arab countries don't want Hamas to win. Egypt feels that if Hamas wins, that Muslim Brotherhood wins, they are the enemy of President Sisi. Jordan feels that they will come after King Hussein uh, um, uh, after the after the after the um, uh, the 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 the, uh, the king, and uh, Saudi Arabia feels that that threatens MDS and is destabilizing and is a victory for Iran. So the reason they're not employing the oil weapon is essentially because they, though they won't say it in public, they would like Israel to do the battle for them and to defeat Hamas, which is also one of the reasons why um, the greater the defeat for Hamas, the greater the likelihood after a period of time that there'll be some sort of increased normalization of relationships. So you have to see things in a much more complicated horizon. Yeah, I think it's fantastic that you shared that bigger perspective with us. It's very important. As we come to the end of this always enlightening talk when we talk with you, what have we missed that we have? I mean, we could go on for hours, but what have we missed that we really should talk about right now? And is I, there anything our listeners can do except agree with us or well, disagree? Let me, let me tell you about our congresswoman. Our congressman woman was um, complaining to us, and she's a personal friend. And I'm not going to state her name because I uh, precisely uh, because I, I want um, to make it generic. She's complaining that the calls have been going four or five to one against Israel into her office. The letters have been four or five to one against Israel in the office. And that is that we have sat on the sidelines and not been politically active in the ways in which we have to be politically active. I think that we have to uh, put pressure on those congressmen who are supporting us. We have to give them thank you. And those who are playing games with the uh, political process, we have to also call them to account. And we need a much greater level of political um, engagement than we've seen. 
Otherwise, we're going to make it more difficult for our friends to support us and easier for our enemies to um, have their way. And I want to just add, for those of you, we uh, Evelyn and I have interviewed Avi Gordon for Alums for Campus Fairness. It's really important to sign up for your alma mater's newsletter. So I got a lot of alerts about Penn because then uh, alums can make a difference at college campuses. But with so much news, if you don't have a direct source, you may not know what's going on with your alma mater. So please, it's a, it's not it doesn't cost you any money. Just sign up alums for campus fairness. We, we, we did something else in our family, which is, um, and we have, uh, unfortunately, I have four, fortunately, I have four children. Uh, our children have gotten, uh, we have graduate, undergraduate and graduate degrees. Our children have undergraduate and graduate degrees. We made, uh, we wrote a letter and supported the activities of Hillel on all of the campuses that we were affiliated with, sent a copy of our letter to all of the presidents and in, uh, supported those causes that were keeping Jews, Jewish students safe, told the president we expected from them to keep their Jewish students there and other students, not yes. only, not only uh, Jewish students, but keep all students safe, not from safe from ideas, but safe from physical violence so they don't have to hide in closets and they don't have to um, run away and you don't have death threats and the like. And let's point out where, you know, uh, you had you had um, uh, a situation in Cornell and the president of Cornell ate at the Jewish dining room, came to services and the like. And, you know, and they caught the person who threatened the life of uh, of uh, um, of uh, Jewish students at Cornell. You have a, a, an interesting thing that occurred at, at Yale um, yesterday um, when somebody put a Palestinian flag on a menorah. And the interesting thing that happened, which we have to take a look at, is that the demonstrators insisted the Palestinian flag be taken down from the menorah, even though they were carrying Palestinian flags because they wanted to respect religious pluralism. That already says that the um, there's got to be the holding of a certain type of civic bond in order for us not to fall apart at this moment. I think that's really good words to end with, unless, Evelyn, there's a question that you wanted to ask. That you, Okay. So I'm going to say thank you, Dr. Michael Berenbaum, for coming on our show when we ask. He's fantastic and thank our listeners if you want to know more about evelyn and myself and our work you can go to never again is now podcast on youtube uh, spotify and apple podcast and i'm going to add an extra ending we always say at the end of our shows we ask people to speak up against anti-semitism and all hate but i'm going to say one more thing and it's bring them home thank you <laughs>